Would you turn to the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter of the prophet Isaiah. I'll begin reading at verse 9 and read on through the rest of the chapter. Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, or, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him as for the idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One? 
lift up your eye on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. All this in preparation for the reading of our sermon text from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. Jesus is speaking and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this reading and hearing of your word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of it now, that your people may be encouraged, for we are sinners and needy. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Almighty God delights to build his glorious kingdom upon the ruins and rubble of the failed empires that went before it. He delights to grow godly families and nations and civilizations in the rotting compost of their failed parents and predecessors. Doesn't he? 
hasn't he? By the grace of God, young marriages and young families that are committed to the reign of Jesus Christ in their home aren't doomed to follow in the footsteps of their divorced parents. Because on the ground of what's been swept away, he often builds something much better and more beautiful. And in terms of international history, the same is true. In terms of international history, according to God's eternal decree, Babylon, at its appointed time, fell to Persia. And Persia to Greece, and Greece to Rome. And even the mighty Roman Empire was finally shattered by the coming of that stone cut without hands from the mountain that stone which, having shattered the strength of men, has come in these last days to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of his kingdom. Dear ones, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And out of the shattered, tattered threads of thousands of desperate human lives, the stories of failed men, failed women, failed nations. Out of all of these loose ends, the Holy Spirit has woven together for us the Bible. The Bible. The Bible tells the story of the cosmic triumph of one man only. Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror. And it tells this one story against the background of the abject failure of all others to meet God's inflexible demands, his standard of holiness, that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Everyone else Everyone fails. The Bible makes clear that however men may flatter ourselves, the fact of the matter is that by nature and birth, we're not okay with God. That in fact, we're lost sinners. That by nature, as children of a fallen Adam and Eve, by nature, we're fundamentally flawed. That we're not up to this task of being the glorious men that God first designed men to be. That our personal best efforts, our promises to become such strong, unwavering, godly men, such stalwart examples of unblemished humanity... whether those efforts come through better education or by trying harder or whatever, all these promises we make are in vain. Because the plain truth is, I've already failed. You've already failed. We've all failed. 
And what's more, we'll continue to fail in many, many ways. We're never, ever going to be able to redeem ourselves. Because men who are dead in sin don't spontaneously recover. Now, these are very hard words, I know. But it's a mercy to us. It's a mercy to you and to me when we finally, finally come to see it. Because the failure of men, the dashing of our man-centered hopes, our man-centered fantasies, the failure of mere men is the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding our desperate need is the threshold that leads by grace into new hope and a new life. Because Christ builds his glorious kingdom upon the ruins we make of our own lives. Our sermon text transports us once again back into that dark night in which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed. The Passover meal at this point is, is behind them, behind Jesus and the twelve, and the table's been cleared. He's just instituted for all coming ages his own memorial meal, that meal intended for his own covenant people who were soon to be delivered out of their own bondage into the liberty of the sons of God. Judas Iscariot, by now, is already gone. He had other business to attend to that night. Dark, nefarious business. He's gone. The rest of them rise from the table, and they make their way to the door, and on their short walk eastward, across the Kidron Book, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus continues teaching and advising them on the things that they need to know those remaining 11, the things they need to know, things that lie directly ahead of them. And as they're going, he turns to the class leader and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, that is, pay attention, look, pay attention, this is important. Satan has asked permission to sift you, all of you, to sift all of you as the wheat. He's asked permission to sift you, to shake you, to toss you, all of you. He wants to blow away all the church's useless chaff by sifting the church. He wants to filter out the twigs and the pebbles and everything else that's not the good wheat. He wants to see and he wants to show God what this fledgling little church is really made of. And of course, Satan has absolutely no interest, no interest whatsoever, in refining the church this way, what he's really after is the hard evidence that he needs by which to accuse us. That's why he's sifting the church. 
He's wanting to bring charges against us. He wants to prove that in reality, the Lord's church is nothing but chaff and twigs and sticks and stones. That's what Satan wants to do, but he needs the Lord's permission to do the testing. And Satan's been doing this for a long, long time, hasn't he? Back sometime in the early days of the patriarchs, Job learned experientially what this satanic sifting felt like. And it literally broke him. It broke him. Because if they're ever to meet face to face with the holy God, even good men need to be broken. Even good men need to be broken. Even Job did. But what's infinitely more remarkable than the breaking of the good man Job, what's infinitely more remarkable, so too would the man Christ Jesus. He'd be broken very soon. He'd be broken so that he might become a faithful high priest, fully acquainted with our grief and our sorrows and our fiercest temptations under trial. All this he'd very soon be facing, yet without failure, without sin. So this is the first thing Simon Peter, as class leader, needs to know. That there's trouble brewing, terrible, terrible trouble. That Satan's request for divine permission is behind that trouble. That it's going to shake you, it's going to shake all of you to the core. And that it's going to show all the powers of heaven and earth who you, the church, really are. And by the way, Peter, you're going to fail. So that's the first point. Trouble's coming to test you, and you're going to fail. Now, before we move on to the second point, we should probably ask what spiritual helps we might possibly salvage from the jarring wreckage of this first one, this first point. When the ladder's kicked out from under you, as it will be, then what's going to help strengthen your slipping grip as you're hanging there on the roofline gutter? Hanging there, guilty, obviously, demonstrably guilty over the mouth of hell. What's going to keep the believer's terrible stumble from becoming a fatal fall? How can we hold on through these desperate, earth-shattering trials that test our faith? Well, one thing we ought to remember at such a time as this, Satan may, in fact, be knocking the props out from under you. But he first had 
to ask God's permission to do so. And the Almighty God, whom we read about in Isaiah chapter 40, the Almighty God, your loving Heavenly Father, said yes. So, do we now have a bone to pick with God, who said yes to Satan? Let's say what you really wanted out of life was a Cadillac, and God gave you shoes. Shoes with holes in them. Or sent you through life barefoot, or worse. Beloved, listen. God loves his children in ways beyond telling. He loves us beyond imagination, but he doesn't and he won't coddle us. He's never promised to coddle us. He's promised to make us into something truly beautiful, something we aren't quite yet. He's fashioning these lumps of stone over the course of a lifetime into pillars fit for a palace. But that transformation over the course of a life, that transformation requires some serious chipping away by the chisel of his providence and the painful loss of a lot of stuff that needs to be left behind. So trouble's coming, and you're going to fail. Point number one. But listen carefully to what he says next to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know when I tell you that Christianity bears absolutely no resemblance to a trouble-free life. Even if there were such a thing as a trouble-free life in this fallen world, trials do come to the true believer, and when they come, we fail. Almost routinely, for some of us, we fail. How unspeakably good for us, then, that my standing before God or my sitting at his table, it doesn't depend upon my own untarnished moral perfection. It doesn't depend upon my making the right decisions every time when I'm in a, a temptation, a period or a season of temptation. It doesn't depend on my making the right decisions every time. My standing before God is a function of my faith. Specifically, my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I personally fail all the time. Which makes me think that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't up there in heaven praying for me that I never be tested or that I never fail the tests. If he'd prayed that Simon Peter courageously stand firm that night around the charcoal fire in the court of the high priest, if he'd prayed that Peter never deny him, 
that he never failed, then you can be sure Peter would have stood firm. When someone there in the courtyard happened to notice his Galilean accent and inquired about his associations and his loyalties. If Christ had prayed that Peter stand firm, then Peter would have stood because when the Son of God speaks, it's done. Instead of praying for that, he prayed for Simon Peter, as you can be sure, he prays for all his elect that our faith not fail. That our faith not fail. And if my first point discouraged you, if it brought you down in any way by reminding you of the plain realities of life in a fallen world and our failures in it, then let this second point carry you back up that mountain. If the Lord Jesus Christ is your strength, then let this fact that he prays for you, let that fact make your feet like hinds feet. Let it set you up to walk again in your high places. In fact, that's not enough. Let's rethink this. In view of what we're hearing Jesus Christ say to Peter and for his church, can even those high places Habakkuk mentions, can even those high places contain your exaltation? Listen, brothers and sisters, my fellow failures, let what Jesus says here set you among the stars that the Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for us that our faith not fail. That from heaven's throne he does pray for us, that assuredly he will pray for us in the hour of trial, the hour of our personal failure. He prays that our faith not fail. Now, how do we know this to be true? How do we know it to be true that he'll never cast off his elect? That poor Christian who's failed him once too miserably or once too often. How do we know? The answer doesn't lie with us. It lies with him. We only know this to be true because the scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We know it because the scripture tells us his mercy lasts forever. Because the scripture says he prays for those who trust him that in our failures, our personal failures, our faith won't fail. It'll bring us through the failures and turn us again to him. <clears throat> but there's one thing more that the class leader, Peter, and every Christian leader in every age needs to hear. Trials are coming and will fail. We know that. When we do, the Lord's praying for us that our faith won't fail that it'll sustain us through our personal failures and lead us to turn again, 
to repent. The third point the Lord makes to Peter as class leader shifts from the indicative to the imperative mood. Once you've failed, as you will, and learn from your failures, which you should, and returned again from them, broken and repentant, when these things have happened, then strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. That's the Lord's charge to Christian leaders. Failed leaders. Repentant leaders. Did you learn anything at all from your failures? If you did, then take those lessons you learned and strengthen your brothers. My fellow Christian soldiers, I want you to ask yourself, do I really want to entrust myself to the leadership of a man who has led a life of perfect, unbroken, unblemished, serenity that 4.0 West Point lieutenant who starched uniform always carries that crease that you could never manage to press into your own the young officer who's learned in school to talk the talk but he's been walking the walk for about 90 days just since his graduation from the academy is that the man you want to follow into battle? If I had my preference, when war comes, let me follow the man who's already tasted battle. The man who's experienced it, who's experienced enough of it to understand it to understand what it takes to survive and win. Let me follow that officer whose uniform may be a little less than perfect, a little more faded by the sun, that officer whose physical bodies may carry the scars of hard experience. Let me follow someone who's learned a thing or two about fighting the good fight of faith. Because that officer isn't just about regulations. That officer has some stories to tell to strengthen the rest of us. Now, why is today's message so important to us? It's only a few verses, but why is it so important? It's important because failure is a standard feature of the genuine Christian life. It is. It just is. We really ought to understand it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This being the case, confessing our failures promotes transparency in the church militant, which is what we are. Confessing our sins and our failures promotes transparency. Pride has no place among us. P. 
Peter himself fought hard scrapes and skirmishes all the way from the Gospels through the New Testament epistles and all the way to the end of his life. He fought. And often he failed, didn't he? But the words of Micah 7 verse 8 might as well be Peter's because they were given by one and the same spirit. Micah 7, 8 reminds us, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will arise. So confession of our failures to honor Christ promotes transparency in the church. It also promotes brotherly love. It promotes brotherly love. Now, there's certainly a time and a place for church discipline. But church discipline is not for the repentant. The church doesn't shun or quarantine its failed members because we know the disease to some extent infects us all. Through discipline, we quarantine not the sinner per se, Through church discipline, we quarantine the unrepentant sinner. The man or woman who hasn't learned, hasn't reflected, hasn't wept, hasn't repented and returned to strengthen the brothers. Let us welcome back with all our hearts those who've fallen and turned again in repentance. Finally, confession of our failures promotes a proper sense of realism in the church. A proper sense of realism. This is the Christmas season, and some of you over the past few weeks may well have uh, paid a visit to the greeting card section of your local bookstore or Walmart, or wherever it is you shop for such things. And you may have noticed that Hallmark and Dayspring and all these other card companies tend to present an idealized view of Christianity. A view that's frankly light years removed from the experience of most of us. The front of the card may offer these picturesque prints of Courier and Ives or Thomas Kincaid, prints of glowing little chapels nestled amid snow-covered hills. You see on the front of the card happy little families all bundled up, happily making their happy way from horse-drawn sleigh into the brightly lit sanctuary. Even the horses look happy on these cards. Was going to church ever really like that? I hope it was somewhere. I hope it is that way somewhere today. But for most of us, for most of us, church is a hospital for sinners. It's rehab for failures. 
Thanks be to God, our Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven now, prays for us that our faith may not fail. So where is boasting? Where is the Christian's boasting? It's excluded. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tender care that you continue year after year, generation after generation, that you continue to show to your church that errs and fails and falls flat in so many ways. We thank you for not withholding from us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to pray for us, that you love us. We thank you that we can commit into your hands this year, this sad year past, and look with hope into the new year only because you do not change and your gospel has not been taken from us. Grant us your blessing, we pray. Grant that our faith may not fail when we do. We humbly ask this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.